0: Good morning, dear saints, and blessed Lenten tide. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Thursday, February 29th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Today we take up Deuteronomy chapters sixteen and seventeen, wherein Yahweh, through Moses, provides instructions on celebrating the three major Israelite festivals Passover, the festival of weeks, and the festival of booths or tabernacles. This emphasizes the importance of joy and remembrance and community in worship. He also establishes guidelines for anointing or I'm sorry, appointing judges and officials to ensure justice and he details the procedures for legal decisions, warns against idolatry, rules for appointing a king, and a lot more. Whether you're coming to us over the air online at KFUO.org or as a podcast, no matter how you're joining us this morning, you're the reason we're here. I'm so grateful that you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We are about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit LHFmissions.org to learn more. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email me at PastorBoo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, or you can call into the studio with your question, 1-800-730-2727. Joining us this morning, it's the Reverend Derek Waffle. He's the pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Good morning, Pastor Waffle. Welcome back to the show. Good morning.
1: And I have a slight correction for you. Uh, Since the last time we talked, I am no longer in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Oh Uh, As of about four months ago, I, I accepted a call and was installed at Ascension Lutheran Church in Huntsville, Alabama
0: ascension lutheran church in huntsville alabama all right i've made the correction um well that's a shame uh, not only because i don't get to say pascagoula that's so fun to say uh, I'm sorry <laughs> but uh huntsville i've been there it's a great place um and so yeah I'm, I'm well blessings to you on your new uh call and the the saints there at ascension well tell us Thank a little you. bit i mean uh, how are things going then there
1: oh well um any pastor knows how uh, how challenging it is to enter into a new call, a new congregation. And, of course, the uh, moving process that goes along with that is uh, uh, less fun than it could be. Uh, uh, we are very... Uh, thankful that we have closed on a house here in Huntsville just this week. So now we have the process of moving all of our things from Mississippi and still selling the house down there. But, uh, so far, uh, you know, I've been here for about four months and it is a wonderful congregation. We're very happy to be here.
0: You know, it, it is always fun. You know, I've, I've had a couple of calls and those first, uh, Few years really are pretty exciting in the sense that you're getting to know new people. Of course they're very challenging because you, you know, you don't know the people yet or what their needs are. So I just pray that it's uh, you know, mutually beneficial ministry to both of you. I'm sure God will use you in in ways that will bless that congregation. And hopefully he'll use them to bless you. I tell you what, before we dig into our text for today, would you just go ahead and open us with a word of prayer? Absolutely. Heavenly
1: Father, you give us so many good gifts in our lives, and first and foremost among those is the gift of your Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and our salvation. All Holy Scripture points us to Him. So even as we study the Word in Deuteronomy, the words of Moses to us from many centuries before our Lord's birth, death, and resurrection, still it all testifies to Him. So, In this Lenten season, may you always, by your Holy Spirit, guide us to find Christ in all the words of the the prophets and in that be brought to ever more strong and, and vibrant faith in him. All that we do is to your glory alone. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, today's text uh, covers the three major festivals, and i got to say that growing up, um, even in the church, I I never really had a great grasp on these festivals and feasts. In fact, I didn't really have a good grasp on it, I think, until seminary, Uh, and yet it really is interwoven into the New Testament, to Pentecost, and even our celebrations today, so it's certainly worth looking at, but... I don't know. I mean, what was your experience? I mean, have have you, I mean, were you, you get what I'm saying? Like, Were you aware of these?
1: (laughs) No, I I agree. You know, up until probably seminary, just like you. uh, um, You know, I I had heard about some of these things, you know, read, you know, reading in the Old Testament, you read about these different festivals, but uh, the, there's such a disconnect in and how it feels, what, well, okay, what they were doing in the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes along and everything's different. Uh, but really, they are, yeah. You know, it, it is all about Jesus. Uh, even these Old Testament festivals, they all uh, point to him or connect to him in some way.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what's really fascinating about it. I mean, God's foresight, and obviously we shouldn't be surprised <laughs> that the creator right. of the universe, who's <laughs> omnipotent, knows everything. But still, it's I just it's beautiful to see it play out over the course of history. We are it certainly is. in a privileged time to be able to look back and see on how God is fulfilling His promises. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, do you want to lay some foundation for what we've been talking about before we dive into sixteen?
1: Oh, well, you, um, you can say I, no. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know uh, I know your listeners, if they've been tuning in for the previous 15 chapters of Deuteronomy, know that this is uh, sort of uh, Moses' uh, uh, last uh, instructions to the people of Israel as they are at the end of those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And uh, some of it is just reiterating what they have already heard uh, uh, and then encouraging them to be faithful and continue to follow God and uh, uh, just... Uh, as they stand on the, the doorstep of the promised land, just the this capstone moment uh, of all of that.
0: Yeah. And, and most recently yesterday, we talked about the sabbatical year. I don't know why I say it like that. The sabbatical yeah. year. And um, it was a great conversation about forgiveness and, you know, just how God was providing for his people, even the poor. And so now when we get into Passover, the festival the week and the feast of booths, um, we're we're going to see how God continues to provide for his people, and these events uh, harken back to how he has provided for them in the past, right? So we have Passover, Weeks, and Booths. So each of them commemorates an event from Israel's history. We're going to start with Passover. I'm going to read chapter 16, starting with verse 1. We'll go through verse 8. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to Yahweh your God. For in the month of Abib, Yahweh your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh your God from the flock or the herd at the place that Yahweh will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that Yahweh your God is giving you, but at the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that Yahweh your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh there shall be a solemn assembly to Yahweh your God. You shall do no work on it. Now, brother, this is pretty much just a summary. I mean, elsewhere in Exodus, we're going to see a lot more detail about this, but this certainly is a suitable summary for the people to remind them why they observe Passover.
1: Yeah, and if there's if there's one Old Testament feast that connects perhaps the most clearly to Jesus, uh, it would be this one. Uh, yeah, the the Gospels uh, are draw that connection out for us pretty clearly. Uh, Christ, our Passover Lamb, uh, has been sacrificed. Uh, Paul writes in first first Corinthians. Uh, so there there is that uh, pretty obvious connection. The uh, the Passover Lamb was uh, sacrificed uh, as. Uh, preservation of the life of the the firstborn among the Israelites when those among the Egyptians uh, were uh, were killed in that tenth plague. Uh, one of my favorite Easter hymns, uh, a Martin Luther hymn, Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands. Uh, he, he writes in one of the verses of that, uh, see his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it. Death passes over and Satan cannot harm us. Uh, so, you know, where where is Jesus in this one? Well, that he, he is the Passover lamb who who uh, uh, covered in his blood. Death passes over us and cannot do anything to harm us. Uh so, you know, the and the Israelites, uh perhaps it's it's a a mistake that we we think you know the the ancient people before the time of Jesus, well, okay, they didn't know the gospel because they didn't know about Jesus. Well, that's that's not the case at all. They knew all about God's uh powerful work and his deliverance of them. The the Exodus is is full of gospel how God saves and delivers and sets free and even if they don't know the whole story yet in Christ, it is, uh, you know, they, they, they know who their God is. They know that he saves them. And this is all uh, part of that pointing forward to Christ and that greatest, most definitive act of God's salvation.
0: And, and what I really like about it, too, is that God is establishing for them, um, to use our modern language, a liturgical calendar and the purpose of this liturgical calendar with these events is for them to remember, you know, what he has done for them. Passover of course, being how he freed them from slavery in Egypt. And and I and I connect that today because, you know, we have sort of the festival season of the church year where we have a lot of festivals at once reminding us of things that Christ has done. And then we have sort of the ordinary time where it's Less fe- fewer festivals, but still uh, we get to grow as the church grows and we, we kind of get to grow along with the early church through our lectionaries and our liturgies. And so here we see that, that God is establishing this sort of ordering of worship and remembrance. And I think that's important as many churches today seem to kind of be going away and I suppose it's their prerogative to do, but for me to go away from how the church has observed the passing of time and connected it to the work of God, I think they do that at their own peril. Uh, and I'm not talking about worship styles. I'm just talking about you know living and breathing with the with the with the year of the church.
1: Oh no, I I, I agree that there's this rhythm of life. Uh, well. Part of it goes all the way back to creation itself, the uh six days of work and one day of rest that is, is part of the the rhythm of creation and right then this yearly cycle that is all focused on on uh god on on uh, teaching the people about their Lord, returning them to him uh, bringing them back to worship and yeah you, you you're you're correct that uh, that's part of the rhythm that we have in the church as well uh, I was uh, uh, just talking to uh, some of our preschoolers a couple of days ago, and talking about the the colors of the pyramids in the church. And I say, well, yeah, you know, we, we we kind of color code things for ease of reference. Uh, you know, we uh, uh, keep keep track of the passing of seasons and uh, the the different focus of the church year. That uh, it's all it's all about Christ. It's all about our own life in faith in light of Him. But uh, uh, th- it does help us uh, get out of our own. Uh, uh, priorities and concerns and into God's time.
0: Absolutely. And we, and we have a lot to cover today, but just a couple more yes. things about Passover. <laughs> you, know, you know, we in, when they were in Egypt, or as they came out of Egypt, I should say, in the Exodus, they would celebrate the Passover in their private homes. But that's changing here, right? I mean, he's now pointing them to the place where Yahweh will give you, the place where Yahweh will make his name dwell. Um, We see a shift, right, from this sort of dispersed worship to now a central location.
1: Well, the worship of the community of God is part of being in community. Yeah, that's uh, again part of the exhortations in the New Testament and Hebrews to not neglect gathering together as God's people in faith. That uh, uh, you know, it isn't just what happens in our personal lives. It isn't just what happens between me and God or uh, in in the family home. Even though those that is important. You know, what the faith in in the home is is most certainly important. But we are brought together as this community that transcends those families, the, the entire people of Israel as God's faithful people, the entire church as God's faithful people.
0: When the Israelites were wandering through the desert, they, they couldn't, you know, they didn't have a central place of worship. I mean, the tabernacle went with them, but they celebrated in their homes, uh, even in the time up till when the, uh, the central place of worship was built. In the New Testament, Christians under persecution would often worship in their own homes so I illustrate this because there are many today, repristinationists, we might call them, who say that, well, we need to go back to worshiping the way the, the first century Christians did without a thought to the fact that they worship that way because of extreme persecution. I hope that we don't have to go back to that out of persecution. <laughs> but I think we see here from Deuteronomy and from the establishment of the church as it grew that God does intend, as you've already said, God does intend for us to gather together in community. Just another, I guess, just another counterpoint to those who would avoid worship for whatever reason or try to claim that since God is everywhere, they can worship him everywhere. God has consistently wanted people to worship in particular ways and at a particular place. And I think that's significant. That is certainly true. Let's move on now to the Feast of Weeks. So the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost, right? So we're going to read verses 9 through 12. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to Yahweh your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as Yahweh your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that Yahweh, your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you should be careful to observe these statutes. Brother, tell us a little bit about the feast or festival of weeks.
1: Oh, uh, well, that name comes from the number of weeks that it is after the Passover. Seven weeks, uh, uh a, um, uh, the, the the number seven, of course, the, the, the weekly Sabbath, and then seven times seven. It's sort of a a Sabbath of Sabbaths, an extra uh, extra Sabbathy Sabbath uh, for this this festival. Uh, and uh, uh, one one thing that I think is fascinating, and again, I, I, I have to be a little bit cautious about this because the uh, scripture itself doesn't spell it out for us. But a later tradition, even by the time of of the the New Testament. Uh, the later tradition had developed among the Jewish rabbis that this was the date that uh, uh, when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai and begin receiving the law and yeah, 50 days after the Passover. I mean, I don't know how fast they were moving, but it kind of makes sense. And uh, But the, it, it was not only a harvest festival in that sense, but also uh, you know, rejoicing both in God's good first article gifts in the harvest and the the, the uh, plenty of the, the promised land, but also in his spiritual gifts, uh, the giving of his word. Uh, and in that, I think it's, uh, connects really well to Pentecost because Pentecost, Pente, uh, that same root for like uh, uh, Pentagon, uh, five, or I'm sorry, sorry, not five. I'm getting uh, linguistically confused here, but uh, that is the, the, the Greek term that ended up being used for this festival, uh, Pentecost being the time, uh, the, the 50, 50th day um, after uh, after Passover. Well, what happens on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes. There, it is also a, uh, a harvest festival in a way. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the workers are few for the harvest, but there is so much that is, is to be done in the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Well, this is a, uh, also a harvest in a way of the, uh, the people from all nations hearing the message proclaimed by the apostles and 3,000 come to faith in that day it is uh, drawing the the uh people in through the fulfillment of that uh, commission to to uh make disciples baptizing and and proclaiming christ
0: yes and and you know this 50th or you know this roughly seven weeks until they celebrate it um yes i've heard that connection too to the giving of the law and as you've already pointed out and i just want to make clear for the listeners That's why there were so many people in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was given to the uh, to the disciples. That's why they were there for this feast of weeks or the festival of weeks. Um, And and so Shavuot, I think, is it is in Hebrew, which just means weeks. But, yeah, Pentecost in Greek. Right. So. So, yeah. So these feasts are connected to us. This became and continues to be a huge christian festival Uh, but we just don't call it the same way and it certainly isn't a celebration of the grain harvest (laughs) but but it um is certainly a spiritual harvest where god is working through his disciples on that first oh i don't say first pentecost right but that first pentecost where the holy spirit came and then of course even continuing today and uh we
1: we pray uh the lord would continue to send workers into his harvest field
0: Well, let's move on to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is an autumn festival held in the seventh month. They also called it the Feast of Ingathering, by the way. Here we go. Verse 13, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to Yahweh your God at the place that Yahweh will choose, because Yahweh your God will bless you in all your produce and in the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year all your males shall appear before Yahweh your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before Yahweh empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of Yahweh your God, that he has given you. So we get a quick rundown of the festival or feast of booths, and then a summary that three times a year, all your mail shall appear at the well, it's, it's going to be the temple eventually.
1: Yep, three three times a year. Again, that rhythm of faithful living. And like you said, that's the reason why there is this crowd of uh, uh, people from all across the, the known world for them at the time at Pentecost, because they are heeding these words of, of Deuteronomy and of, of the Old Testament. That this is the time that you come and you bring your offering and you worship God here all together. Uh, so as you said, this is a, a fall festival, You know, um, moving over to the two in the spring into the uh, um, early fall. And it, it is also connected with harvest, in this case, the fruit harvest and the, uh, the gathering and the produce from the threshing floor and the wine press. So it's sort of um, ancient Israelite form of Thanksgiving in a lot of ways. All three of these are connected to those uh, agricultural times. But uh, in that, it is the reminder that all of these good gifts all of this produce and and bounty are coming from God. So in that sense, very much like how we seek to celebrate Thanksgiving, remembering how God has blessed us in our our land and our lives and returning thanks to him for that. Uh, the one the one aspect I love about the Feast of Booths is, uh, it's not explicitly made here so much in Deuteronomy, but in Leviticus, it talks about how one of the elements of this uh, observance is making a shelter out of uh, branches or palm fronds or things like that to remember how their ancestors lived in tents while their god took care of them for 40 years in the wilderness uh, i've always thought it's funny because it would be like if um, you know if we um, I me mean, speaking personally uh, a descendant of Europeans who came to the new world uh, if to remember uh, what my ancestors went through that i I uh, lived in a little log cabin for one week out of the year or went out to sea in in a some sort of a, an old sailing ship one week out of the year to remember what uh, what they went through well, that's what the Israelites are being told to do. Make yourself a little temporary shelter and live in that so that you don't forget how God cared for your forefathers, and therefore, by remembering the past works of God, how he continues to care for you and will continue to care for you in the present and in the future. So just as uh, uh, Moses reminds the, the people through the 40 years in the wilderness, they did not go hungry, the manna came down every morning, as God said, Their their clothes did not wear out. God provides. God provides, provided for them for those 40 years, and here and now, God provides for you.
0: The fact that they had to build these little booths or tabernacles in which to live, I think it illustrates how God loves for the messages to become incarnate, right? I mean, they are remembering by reenacting, and we still see that in our worship today. Uh, of course, the sacraments God actually works through, but they right. also are symbolic of the things that God has done for us. Uh, it, it you know He does give us His very true body and blood of His Son who died for us on the cross and and strengthens our faith and forgives our sins. But we also do it in remembrance of what Christ has done and what God has done, and that's what this is about. So I, I God knows, and this is me speaking off the cuff, but God knows that we need these sort of incarnate reminders. I I believe that's why he combined his word with visible elements to affect the sacraments, because he knows that that's just the nature of who we are. And so, yes, I think that um, there was a movement, gosh, uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, where they were taking youth and they would like sleep on the streets for – a couple days or overnight or something to try to, you know, connect themselves that, yeah. to the <laughs> homelessness. And I never thought that was too awfully bad. I thought it was a little, it certainly doesn't get them even close to what the struggle of homelessness is about. But, you know, just a little bit of inconvenience for them to be reminded that not everybody has it the way they do. I didn't think that was a bad thing.
1: No, I agree. Uh, I agree with that, too. Yeah. Yeah worship our worship is a full body experience you know we uh i heard someone call it lutheran calisthenics the stand up sit down kneel down stand up sit down uh you know we we our bodies are involved and we we feel water in baptism we we uh, taste the uh the bread and the wine that are the body and blood of christ in communion that it is a you know we are as god created us a full human being is body and soul and every everything together as God made us and he comes to us and communicates to us as he created us
0: I always found it but, a little amusing when people will call um, let's say they go to a worship service that's uh, very focused on on music uh, you know uh, upbeat uh, energetic music and and they say oh this is experiential worship and and I suppose yeah absolutely they're experiencing this music but but the church worship, that we experience is as you said full body i mean and if you throw in incense you're getting all the sense. you're getting all the yeah. senses you know you're you're tasting the body and blood of jesus you're holding in your hand the creator of the universe you're seeing uh with your eyes uh the uh the liturgical garments and the windows that point to the messages of faith and uh and like i said you could smell the symbol of your prayers ascending to heaven um I don't think there's anything more experiential than receiving the true body and blood of Jesus in your hand and in yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> there's
1: one more uh uh Jesus connection or God connection I want to, to throw in here with the Feast of Booths, uh you know as as you said it's also translated sometimes as tabernacles. Well, the tabernacle, that word uh, immediately reminds us of the uh, the tent that they were commanded to make. In which the the ark of the covenant and uh, the the altar of incense and so forth was in the middle of the the israelite camp during those 40 wilderness years Uh, it was the presence of god literally in the midst of his people you know they were told to put the tabernacle at the center and then you know each side north south east and west three of the 12 tribes on each side so the the presence of god and the tabernacle and the ark right at the very heart and then All the people around that, you know, the Israelites are told to celebrate once a year in their own little tabernacle, their own little booth. Well, when they were in the wilderness, it wasn't just their ancestors who were were dwelling in these uh, tents, these temporary shelters. God was there with them, too. God also dwelt in a booth alongside the Israelites. God dwells in the midst of his people. In uh, John chapter 1, he, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, that, uh, uh, that, that is, again, the, the uh, ultimate fulfillment in Christ of what all of these promises and all of these uh, indications and, uh, to the, the ancient people all were building up to.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, the, the phrase that you just said, he dwelt among us, that Greek word for dwelt is um, connects to tabernacle. Basically, you could say he tabernacled among us.
1: That's correct. Well,
0: yeah. at least if I I'll remember tell you what, this seminary is... Greek well enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're right up against the break, so we're going to take it. Folks, don't go anywhere in just a few moments. When we come back, Pastor Waffle and I will keep on going through Deuteronomy 16 and 17. See you in a second. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today, it's the Reverend Derek Waffle. He's the pastor of Ascension Lutheran Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Don't forget, folks, that you can contact me at PastorBoo at gmail.com on Facebook, or you can call in 1-800-730-2727 with your comments, questions, complaints, or more, whatever you want to talk about. All right. Well, let's get back to the text. Boop, 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 boop. Got to open up my file here. Here we are. So now we are moving into justice. So we've been given these festivals, and now he's talking about how to maintain law and order. Moses says, verse 18, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that Yahweh your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that Yahweh, your God, is giving you. I will pause right there at the end of 20. As we've been reading through Deuteronomy, there are a lot of conditional promises. You know, Obey me, and things will go well with you in the land. Follow my way, and you won't even have poor among you. God says, as he also then tells them how to take care of the poor, which I think is insight into uh, how much he knows us. But here is another uh, conditional promise, but it's about justice. And I feel like today the concept of justice, particularly social justice, um, I think it it blurs the lines between the justice that God is seeking uh, and and trying to instill in people here. But I don't know. What do you think? What's Moses getting at?
1: Well, you're right that people can use that word to uh, do an awful lot of work and uh, not, not sometimes talking past each other as to what uh, uh, this justice is referring to. I mean, in the case of what Moses is dealing with here, uh, sounds to me it's like you know court cases, uh, lawsuits, perhaps disputes between people and how you resolve a dispute between one person and another person, because as you say, god knows us very well it would be uh wonderful if we didn't have these disputes if we all lived together in perfect harmony uh that's not going to happen on this side of christ's return so we have to have ways of dealing with with those aspects of our humanity and our life together in community but god is very much concerned about these things you know show justice do not uh you know, perverting justice here in verse 19 is connected directly with showing partiality, favoring one side over another side. Uh, again, back in Exodus, this is addressed multiple times. The, in Exodus uh, 23, you know, do not be swayed by the crowd, by popular opinion, mob rule, you could say. Do not show partiality to a poor man because he is poor. And do not show partiality to a rich man because he is rich. That uh, uh, God is a God of truth and values uh, uh, truth among us as well. And this, uh, I believe, is part of that. You know, the traditional depiction, justice is blind. Well, that fits quite well with what we see here. Do not show partiality, but uh, judge these disputes uh, rightly, according to the truth, uh, so far as we are able to determine that and of course do not accept bribes uh i feel like that should be uncontroversial to most people uh, saying that it's not a good thing when your judges are accepting bribes uh, unless you're the one doing the bribing i suppose if you're wealthy and you can buy the outcome you want then it seems nice to you but uh, objectively speaking uh, it's pretty easy for us all to agree that that is not good for society at large um well, you get this promise that's connected with it you know that you may live and inherit the land the lord is giving you uh, i i think it's twofold one it is simply how things work when uh, our society starts to break down and these uh, sort of disputes are not uh, resolved righteously uh, when they're either uh, the authorities in the land are not carrying out their duties properly well We're not going to live and enjoy the land that, uh, or that whatever God gives to us for very long. It's just the normal course of events when human society breaks down. But particularly for the Israelites, you know, the Promised Land. Again, the phrase we use: the Promised Land, the land of God's promise. It is always God's gift to them, and it it is a constantly given gift when. Later on, the Israelite people are not faithful. The land gets taken away from them for a time. It is always God's land given to them. Uh, a, a, not only a one-time gift, but a constantly given gift.
0: I was thinking about your comment about mob rule, and that connects us to Jesus, too, in a way. I mean, we, we have Jesus's suffering and death, as the result of uh, injustice on that on the hands of the governing authorities who gave in to right. mob rule, um, our, our of course God can work that.
1: Experience with
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God can work that to our glory, which I mean, His glory. Pardon me, to our salvation, which He did. Um, but I just think it's interesting that justice is sort of squeezed in here between the three festivals, and now what we're going to talk about as forbidden forms of worship. And then we get back into some legal decisions. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. But as, as you've been saying, back. what's that? It's a bit of a grab bag. <laughs> it is. But I do think that justice underlies all of this. I mean, God is dishing out justice, but it's in this way that where we deserve uh, what well, we don't get what we deserve. And rather, he dishes that out on Jesus. But worship has to be in order and proper, and so we have here now picking up with verse 21 and going through 17 verse 7 is forbidden forms of worship, at least according to the ESV editors. Here we go. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of Yahweh your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which Yahweh your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to Yahweh your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to Yahweh your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that Yahweh your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, And certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death, and a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst." Pretty hardcore. I mean, God's not playing around when it comes to false worship, and I actually think we get why maybe justice was mentioned right before this because this is going to involve when it happens um, the proper application of justice, mm-hmm. and he and he gives us some pr- uh, procedures here, which is interesting too. Uh, but anyway, take us through this.
1: All right. Well, like you said, idolatry and false worship are extremely serious. Uh, God, God is not playing around when it comes to this. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, it struck me just now, as you, you were talking about the justice and the the worship here, that what we see is a reflection of the two tables of the law, of the commandments. Whereas uh, Jesus uh, explains it in terms of the greatest commandment, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, well, Proper worship is loving God above all else. And uh, the, these uh, concerns about justice is part of loving our neighbors. That uh, uh, really does sum up all of God's law for us in those, those two words that uh, Christ gives. So, uh, you know, some of these are specific forms of pagan worship that were common, that were issues at that day and time the Asherah, uh, you know verse 22 you shall not set up a pillar which the lord your god hates well of course that's not just any pillar you know just because you have a, a a pillar supporting a, a roof at a, a building doesn't mean that god hates that it's it is a pillar set up as a monument for pagan worship in this situation and uh, making a sacrifice in which there is a blemish he says that is an abomination to your lord well that's uh, so it's not just worshiping false gods but it's also uh not worshiping the true God in the proper way, you know, bringing to him, you know, the, you know, these, these animals with uh, blemishes, it'd be like bringing to God, well, the rejects, the, uh, uh, the, the second, uh, the, the factory seconds, instead of what he, he commands, which is those without blemish, those which are, you know, really a sacrifice for you. You take, you take the, these blemished animals that might not be worth that much to you anyway. How much of a sacrifice is it? Uh, so, you know, both this concern for worshiping the true God instead of false gods, but also worshiping properly. Uh, and for those who do not do that, again, it's a very serious matter here. It can lead to the death penalty, according to uh, uh, this passage here in chapter 17. And so there is a due process. Again, connecting that back to justice uh, among people and their disputes, there is due process here as well. A person cannot be put to death on the evidence of only one witness, because God knows us very well. He knows that there is a temptation or a possibility of, well, maybe, maybe this person has it out for this other person, and they might like to take advantage of some of these procedures to, uh, you know, to get what they want or get even. Uh, some of the stories of uh, witch trials, like the Salem witch trials back in in salem massachusetts in the uh late 1600s some of those come to mind the kinds of of allegations that you really can't prove or disprove uh yeah god doesn't want to have anything to do with that kind of witch hunt and that's why he lays out this process for justice to be done there is fair investigation and evidence uh yeah, there there's uh, no anonymous accusations the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. You know there are no anonymous denunciations, so there. You have the there,
0: right to face your accuser, as we might exactly. say in our yeah. modern legal yeah. parlance. Yeah.
1: And, but uh, and, and I, I think, think there is a, a coincidence.
0: Yeah, there's no, it's not at all. And there's a <laughs> restraint on making false accusations. I believe if you have to be the one who initiates the punishment. Um, and I, I want though, if you could. Help us understand the distinction, though, between God saying here, he's very serious about it, and then we have the incident of Jesus and the woman that they were going to stone, and he gives that famous, you know, he who has no sin casts the first stone. How do we reconcile those two events? Well, I know they're not both about worship, but they are – we are talking about a capital offense that God would put Mm – himself has put down.
1: Well, that is an excellent question, you know, in light of of this, the hand of the witnesses must be the first against them uh now, I know jesus Jesus words is the one who is without sin uh but you know it would it would make me wonder if well, who were the witnesses against that woman uh were they there to to put their you know to cast the first stone As as uh, here it says the the witnesses, the one bringing the accusation has to be willing to to cast that first stone uh, in in that situation, uh, well.
0: Because if they ooh, if they yeah. cast the first stone and it turns out later that it's shown to be mm-hmm. a false offense, now suddenly they've committed murder and they have now to face a capital offense. Um, the, the reason why I bring it up though is that Jesus, uh, people have used Jesus' words to basically say, well, we shouldn't worry about anybody else's sins or really, even our own, because everybody sins, right? Hey, hey, you can't judge me. Or whoever, if you don't have, if you're without sin, then you can judge me. But nobody can do that. We've really kind of, and again, I know Jesus. Obviously, Jesus came to free us from the from the the civil penalties of the law. I get that, but at the same time, you know, I think we have to be very careful that God does demand order, and there are consequences. I think the consequences are different as the governments have changed, but it's certainly. Not without consequence in this world. Well, yeah that that that
1: passage with the uh, the woman caught in adultery is misapplied frequently. I think uh, that uh, uh, you yeah. know does it does it have to do with our freedom freedom from sin? Yes. Does it invalidate everything else in civil society? As again, as God is a God of order who who uh, uh, does not. Uh, does not want us to live in anarchy. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the, the words in uh, Romans 13 or passages like that make that clear as well, that even if the, the governing authorities are not themselves faithful people, that it is still part of God's ordering of this world in, uh, again, uh, not living in complete anarchy, uh, to use the, the, the phrase from Judges, when everyone does what is right in his own eyes.
0: At this time uh, when Moses is giving these, they're going into the promised land. They are going to be a theocracy, you know, so there has to be some order. We've heard it already, but the next few verses talk about legal decisions by priests and judges. So starting with verse 8 through 13, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide in another or one kind of legal right in another or one kind of assault in another – Any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that Yahweh your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that Yahweh will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before Yahweh your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So it's not quite an appeals process, but God does build in a a situation where, if you need to elevate it to a higher court, so to speak, that exists, and it's at the temple.
1: Yep, that's uh, that's that was my first thought as well. Sort of a court of appeal system in a in a more you know rudimentary way. That it may sound fairly basic to our modern ears. Uh, We're accustomed to a very highly developed legal system and. a a plethora of legal professionals like lawyers and judges and and so forth uh they they don't have that in ancient israel they but that doesn't mean that just because it's less uh, uh complicated and less developed that it's necessarily not as good i mean i uh, you could argue that uh, having it more complicated is uh, uh, is actually worse than uh, a simpler, more straightforward system. But uh, but the two things that are at play here that if if things are functioning as they should be, then well these these Levites, the priests and judges, would be among both the most educated and the most Devout, most focused on you know the priest on on that uh, uh, worship of God and uh, 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 spiritual matters, uh, that they they're a logical or a sensible place to turn to for helping resolve disputes. Just as Paul points us to do in First Corinthians, he says that Christians should turn to the church and to fellow Christians to help them resolve disputes, because those disputes happen even among Christians, but that it's not secular courts, but other faithful people who that they should turn to, that uh, you know, possibly a legally unlearned but faithful Christian may give a more righteous judgment than the most trained secular legal professional. Why? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom uh so i think there's there's a lot of wisdom here that uh, even without again that complicated uh, developed legal system they they recognize human nature disputes happen disagreements happen sometimes a second opinion or higher opinion is is required in some of the more complicated situations and in that case Bring it to the people who are living in this fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, who have—who know the word of God, who know the Lord, present it to them. And uh, again, if you ignore them, well, uh, again, a strict, strict system that we've got here, that man shall die. You don't get to go off and do what is right in your own eyes. You are bringing this before the Lord. Uh, again, the the one of the worst things that we can say about that time in in israelite history is everyone did what was right in his own eyes instead the implication i believe what's right in god's
0: eyes that's so true and you know and I, i'm going to encourage listeners to especially not with criminal things of course but with civil things you know you're upset with your neighbor if you're both christians Try to work that out. I mean, that's what the Bible says. It's not really that complicated. Work that out. Don't involve the court system. If you have to go to the church to involve uh, a wise people or neutral people who care about Christians in the Christian faith, avail yourself to that. You know, I, there's no capital of punishment if you end up not agreeing. But as a mediator, I, I would like to argue that your pastor is willing to help So. uh concord between disputing parties. So just something to keep in mind out there.
1: We have a ministry of reconciliation, Paul says, Absolutely. that Absolutely. we are reconciled with God and Christ, but we should also seek to be reconciled with one another.
0: Amen to that. Well, I'm going to read it and you might have a minute to make a comment, but <laughs> we're going to talk about laws concerning Israel's kings. I bit off a little more than we could chew again, but here we go. Verse 14. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Uh, I'm going to editorialize that real quick. Yeah, that <laughs> didn't really work out. Verses yeah. 18. <laughs> and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That he, he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes by doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Boy, there's like a million things we could say, but <laughs> I'm going to give you the last few minutes here. Uh, what about this? This is one of the most fascinating
1: parts of these whole two chapters we've we've been working through for me, because God knows exactly how it's all going to play out. This is generations before the Kings come onto the scene, before uh, uh, they come to Samuel and ask for the King and Saul is anointed for that. This is long time before that. And yet God knows, well, he knows where it's all going to go. So he builds this into his commandment. Uh, You know, it, that uh, he, he gives us some of these things. You know, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, uh, Moses gave you this commandment. Uh, because of the hardness of their heart, God builds in the section about kingship, even though it would have been better and more faithful to not have a king at all in the first place. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, when, when uh, they come to Samuel and ask for a king, God says to Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. And the Israelites hear the warning. Samuel warns them again, and they say, no, we want to be like all the other nations. Well, God says, okay, it's not going to end well for you, but here you go. Um, and some of these things, like, uh, like he warns about, do not acquire many wives. Um, Oops, Solomon, um, do not <laughs> acquire much gold or silver. You know, many horses, this military power and wealth, all these things—political power, military power, economic power—all the things that tend to corrupt leaders, kings. He warns against those, and yeah, we have. uh, I don't know that there's ever been a king
0: in any culture (laughs) or queen that hasn't done all of those things to some degree. Exactly. Um, And even (laughs) our own leaders. um, I Mm. guess I'm going to leave it at that. So I tell you what, folks, we're unfortunately at the end of our program, but I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Derek Waffle. He's the pastor of Ascension Lutheran Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Pastor, thanks for being on the program. All right. Thank you. Do I have 30 more Uh,
1: seconds or are we really done?
0: We really are done, but you can have 30 oh, okay, seconds. Go ahead. No, you can have all it. Right, you can no, have it. No, They're yelling what, at me in you know, St. Louis, but that's okay. Go
1: ahead. Okay. All right. They're not yelling at me, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, well, the, what the king should do, you know, the very end of this, this chapter, what the king should do, he all these things he shouldn't do. But what he should do, write a copy out for himself of this law of God, of the word of God, and read it all the days of his life. The fear of the Lord. By that, keeping his words and his laws, that that is what will teach him humility, to not be lifted up above his brothers, to be humble, to not turn aside from godly ways, to keep the laws of God, to be in the word of God. Okay, I'm done.
0: (laughs) But I love that. I'm glad you emphasized that because, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if not just our political leaders but even our pastors remembered that, right? Keep that close to your heart. Hey, folks, tomorrow is March 1st. It's Free Text First Friday, and our topic is going to be on the practice of Seder meals among Christians. That's kind of relevant. We just talked about Passover. Specifically, we're asking the question, are so-called Christian Seders appropriate for Christians? If so, in what context? If not, why? My guest to help us dig into this timely topic is the Reverend Dr. Daniel Gard, so do not miss it. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. As we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.